Today we are talking to one of my longest, oldest, I had to caveat that, my longest friends. He is older than me, however, though. He's almost 70, but I don't want to bring that up. Dave Gibson and I met circa 1985, six, six, 1986. Cindy and I had finished uh, our tour at the Dallas Theological Seminary. The first church I served was in Grand Prairie, Texas, and it was a traditional church in the sense they had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday evening services, and we had this wonderfully committed, incredibly godly man named Earl Swain who was over the missions program at that church. And he came to me one day and said, hey, uh, Dave Gibson is uh, one of our missionaries, and he's on furlough, and he's a really good preacher. And I said, next? <laughs> When's he here? And let's put him in the pulpit, because I was always looking for a break. And Dave preached. And we had Dave and Kathy over to our little tiny house in Grand Prairie, and that struck up a friendship that's lasted all these years. And, oh, by the way, you were a bit concerned, if memory serves, that this new whippersnapper pastor was going to, what, like, affect your support? Michael, when you're a supported missionary, you're always anxious about how the new guy's (laughs) going to receive you. In my particular case, that church had one-third of our support. Wow. if Michael decided to dump me and put his nephew on the support list, I was I was toasted up. Well, you weren't toasted up. We were thrilled to to see you and uh, and continue to follow your your career. Um, now, you guys, you were at seminary a few years before me, but you did Africa Inland Mission. You did missions trips abroad. You were at Anchorage College of the Bible. Straight out of seminary, did you go to Alaska? Yeah, right out of seminary, we raised support with a group called Sand International and went to Alaska Bible College for eight years. And it was about halfway through that stint where we met when I came back to Dallas for the summer. And you and I uh, went through the doctoral ministry program together. In fact, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of thinking about it in my background, but when you said you were going to do it, I said, that's good accountability. So before there were such things as cohorts, you and I had our own cohort. However, you finished yours on time. Michael, Michael, I finished on time because both of us got done with the coursework and both of us said, I'm not writing this stupid paper. And I went home and informed Mrs. Gibson of that. And she said, excuse me? Exactly. And uh, long, long and short, I wrote the paper and finished and thank God I did. And you and did. And by the way, Michael, that paper is right here. Is it? It's about two and a half inch. It's two and a half inches tall. It's used to support my, my uh, monitor, screen. So your it monitor, nice. It's got use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here's what, yeah. I think mine's in the cage at Dallas Seminary if they still have cage copies, and it's probably never been looked at ever again. But be that as it may, Dr. Dave Gibson finished his undergrad. Now, now, you know, reading your bio is kind of complicated because you bounced around, and you you actually matriculated from? Well, I started at University of Arizona, finished in forestry at University of Montana. Montana. Yep. And then how many years later did you go to Dallas? I worked in forestry three years. Kathy and I lived in Missoula, Montana. Then uh, we went to seminary and took five years to finish that up. Then went to Alaska Bible College eight years, and then 12 years pastoring in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Ten years pastoring in Houston, Texas, hometown of Michael Easley. And then eight years uh, working for a mission board called East West Ministries based out of Plano, Texas. And then retired in 2019 and God has given me just glorious stuff to do in the meantime. And you're so, busier than ever. 
I'm enjoying I'm enjoying it ridiculously, my friend. Speaking and doing a little church health consulting and mentoring a young man in prison and just got off an eight-day wilderness river float and writing a book and mowing the lawn and loving my wife and kids and grandkids. And, and Man, Mrs. Gibson has a lot of projects, at least the way you talk about it. You're always doing something for Mrs. Gibson. Michael, it's possible she'll listen to this uh, podcast. So would you kind of leave that one alone? <laughs> well, let me just say when you complain, I mean, when you report to me, you attribute it to Mrs. Gibson. <laughs> your, your, your second book that came out is called In My Father's Wake by Dave Gibson. And I read this book. I, I could barely put it down. And in fact, Cindy and I talked about it while I was reading it. And I, she said, okay, you love it, but is it because you and Dave are friends or do you think other people are going to like it? And that was a valid question. And I said, anybody who had any issue with their father, this goes back to the, was it Samuel O'Sharon who talked about the um, father wound or somebody else, I forget who identified that first, but we all have it, whether no. we have the greatest father in the world. I mean, your kids, even my kids, believe it or not, have father wounds. Um, <laughs> but we have, Easy to believe. yeah, I know it's hard to believe. The subtitle is How an Anxious Boy Learned to Love a Difficult Dad. And uh, I think I called you at about page 100 and I don't know, 30, and I was in a, I was a wreck reading what you endured. And I consider myself a close friend to Dr. Dave Gibson. And I felt like I am a sorry friend that I didn't know some of the details of this. G give us a thumbnail of, first of all, let's talk theoretical and then practical. Why is there so much influence from a dad to, in this case, a son, but a dad to a child? The reality is a lot of boys and even girls go through this phase with their father. And I don't know who first taught me this, but there's six phases that some people go through. I went through all of them. Anticipation, dad'll be a great dad. Disappointment, dad's not a great dad. Anger, I'm mad at my dad for not being a great dad. Apathy, I'm gonna get away from my dad. I just don't care about him. Pity, my father is a miserable little clod of a human being. And finally, compassion. My dad had his faults, but I love him anyway. And I went through all those phases with my dad. Unfortunately, I got stuck in the pity phase for literally 20 years. And I got out of it for about the last 15 years of his life, which was glorious. I'm th I thank God I did. And, and the book, in that sense, is a redemptive story about God redeeming me, redeeming my dad, redeeming the relationship. But to your initial question, we had 12 pre-readers on this book, half men, half women. And four of the women contacted me and said, Dave, this hooked me so much in my dad relationships that they themselves were saying, you know, a little different, of course, because we're talking some other things. But it was amazing how many people are just wounded in that way. And they have the expectation, going to be a great dad. He's going to love me, care for me. We'll have a great relationship. He'll affirm me. I'm safe in the world because of my dad, you know, and, and then it doesn't work out. And that ends up being a very wounding thing. Before I forget to say it, Michael, let me add one thing. I was, we're using this book as a summer discussion in one of the men's groups I lead. And I explained those six phases to the guys. And one of the guys who was trained in care of foster children, he said, Dave, in my training, I learned that anticipation is unconscious, premeditated resentment. Wow. 
And so I thought about that. How can something be unconscious and premeditated? That's just stupid. But the more I thought about it, I thought, that's what it is. Unconsciously, I was premeditating, Dad, you better perform for me in this way, or I'm going to resent it. And there's a piece of us as kids that put stuff on our dads that may not be fair. Now, that said, there's dads who are pure D evil. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. My dad was not that by any stretch. And so it's, it's difficult for me to make generalizations across the spectrum of all the dads. It caused me a lot of reflection when he gave me that, that definition to say, did I do unconscious premeditated resentment of my father? When I read this book, and I remember countless times you and I over a paper napkin or a sheet of paper writing it, this bell curve of the expectation, disappointment, anger, apathy, pity, compassion. We tracked a lot with our own dads. I mean, you and I would share stories late into the night about, you know, the expectation we have, and yet they're humans and they're sinful and we're children and we have this longing for approval. And I remember years ago talking to a very wealthy, very powerful guy who, for all intents and purposes, had it all together. And we're sitting at a restaurant and he asks me or complains to me about his relationship with his son. And after he finished, I said, you know, your son is looking for affirmation, approval, and his dad's encouragement. You're looking for performance. You're supposed to be the elder, smarter person in this equation. Do you want to approve your son and encourage your son and and work for his respect? Or are you going to hold it over his head? He's not performing according to his your standards. And here's this very powerful, wealthy guy that just wept like a child, Dave. Yeah. And I, I do think it is sort of a universal issue for fathers and children. And granted, even in good Christian homes or just healthy homes in general, this hard wiring. And again, I go back to the theoretical question. I've always been enamored by the fact that it's the father and the son, Jesus Christ. And this is the way he's revealed himself to mankind, that there's the Trinitarian Godhead and the father and the son. Ergo, we are all in the image of our human fathers. Any connection? I mean, you had had to have thought about this pretty deeply. Any parallels there? I think there's huge connection, my friend, and to what you're saying. And the idea that, you know, men are wired to be respected. When I'm not respected, I withdraw from the people who disrespect me. And if my father doesn't respect me, I withdraw from him, you know, emotionally or physically or whatever I do, I just get away. And to the point of this man you're talking about, you know, his son didn't feel respected, obviously. Think about this statement when Jesus came out of baptism and the Lord said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased. Listen to him. You know, and how much of the time do we get that from our dads? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's the bigger issue for me at this stage in life, Michael. How did I misparent my kids? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, as I wrote this book, I started out laying 90% of the problem between my, me and my dad at his feet. And then the further it went along, I kind of realized, no, I've got a huge amount more in this. I further realized that I had made all of my assessments about my dad from an immature heart, an immature mind, immature relationship style, a kid whose thinking was not good by any stretch. But you're a child. 
I'm a child. You're a child. I mean, True. at what point are we old enough? And is that part of the of these bell curves, if you will, where the pity begins? So we, we mature enough in our own life to understand, wait, dad's not perfect. He's a human being. He's sinful. Maybe he's angry. Maybe he's withdrawn. Maybe he's a talker. Maybe he's nonverbal. Maybe he works all the time. Maybe he, the, the, he doesn't, his wife doesn't respect him. I mean, there's a hundred iterations of this we could talk about. At what point, and I'm not trying to lay blame at Hoot Gibson or Joe Easley, but at what point do we say, I was a child? Well, it took me a whole lot longer than should have to finally say I was a child approaching all this and evaluating all this from immature thinking, immature emotions. And I kind of got stuck in that initial evaluation, which was not accurate, stayed in it way too long. I'm, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, Michael, I think in part of the writing in the book, some lights started coming mm-hmm. on about, okay, wow, this is not as bad as I thought, or what did I contribute <laughs> here? <laughs> and stuff just, you know, when you're 69 and have some small amount of maturity, you're saying, what was I whining about, you know? <laughs> but I was stuck in it. The book really helped me personally so, because I began to reevaluate that. Childhood, and uh, I mean, people are going to read in the book, so I don't feel like I'm being indelicate bringing this up. You're the oldest. You're the firstborn. You're a big galoot for people that don't know you. You're bigger and taller than me. And you had high water pants. That's incredible that that image is branded in your head and heart. It's branded, Michael. So the story in a nutshell is, I would do these rapid growth spurts and my pants would get too short and they, and they, and they were horribly short, like two, three inches short. And they embarrassed the tar out of me and I hated it. And my father would see me wearing those pants and say, Hey, Dave's got his high water pants on. Hey, you expecting a flood son? Why are you wearing those pants? And he was the one not buying me longer pants because he had to have a new pistol. And there was a powerful resentment in me maybe unconscious, premeditated, a powerful resentment in me, Michael, about that. Now, one of the realities of our lives is the past is always present in some way or another. To this day, Michael, I buy blue jeans that hang on the ground. <laughs> you know, my my blue jeans are all worn out on the back because I'm stepping on them. It looks I good. Buy it dress, looks good. I buy dress pants that are just on the edge of too long. I can't stand short pants. Mr. Gibson, would you like that little bit break, a high break? No, I want a full break dragging the heel. <laughs> full break plus a half inch. <laughs> Past is always present, my friend. And it's interesting how, how painful, I mean, we're laughing about this, but that's still, it's painful. It is painful. Literally and, and metaphorically, I respect you. And I look, when you stand up and preach at Stonebridge, where I go, man, that guy's a big, tall galoot. I wish I was as tall and handsome. Well, not as handsome. As tall as that guy. <laughs> My dad and I got in a big conflict when I was in sixth grade. He wanted me to go hunting. I wanted to go to a football game in the local town. I love sports. He couldn't stand sports. And I'd never stood up to my dad. And so Saturday comes. He wants me to go hunting with him all day. I want to go to the football game. For the first time in my life, I stood up to him. And I just, I wasn't belligerent or shouting or screaming, but I just said, no, I want to go to the ball game, Dad. I don't want to go hunting. He pressed me hard. I don't know how long this conversation went on, 10, 15 minutes. And finally, when he realized I was just set on it, he said to me, well, suit yourself. It was a statement that was just overflowing with guilt and shame. And the basic message of it was, you snotty, little, self-absorbed jerk. Suit yourself. You can see the energy in me right now. 
instead of suit me, you know. And my father probably said that to me 20 times in my growing up, suit yourself, mm. which meant you're an arrogant, self-absorbed little jerk. Hooked me big time, my friend. I mean, as I say in the book, I was raised on guilt, shame, and heart spankings. And I'm, I'm all stocked up on those things. I said to myself as a child, why do I feel guilty all the time? Why am I such a shameful person? And why do I deserve these hard spankings? No, I did plenty of stuff, my friend. Let's not, let's not leave that out of here. I was a child who was, you know, breaking windows and stabbing himself with his new hunting knife, et cetera, et cetera. So there was plenty I did, but I was just raised in guilt and shame. You know, it's interesting because so many of these stories that I read and the way you tell them, I remember you sharing them with me or maybe after you'd had an encounter with your mom and dad, you and I would talk about it. One that I, it's sad, but I laughed out loud was about the outhouse and the, the famous saying, it loomed up like a outhouse in the fog. <laughs> my father, my father was an expert of sayings, you know? So that's where and, you got it. He, yeah. In his love of the outdoors and the remote, he took us camping one night, left Cody, Wyoming after work, storming like crazy, five kids, mom and dad in this old station wagon, climbing up the mountains because he wanted to find a new camp that the Forest Service had just built up in the Bighorn Mountains. We're going up there, raining like crazy, two-wheel drive for dragging rocks all over. It's just a mess. And, <laughs> and we're all sitting there saying, Dad, it's dark. It's raining. Let's just find a spot in camp. No, we got to find this place. So we're driving all the way up there. Foggy. We've driven into the clouds, raining. Mom and five kids disgusted out of their minds. <laughs> and we come over this little rise, and there's an outhouse in the fog. And he said, we must be here. <laughs> For the rest of his life, when when you find something you were looking for, it loomed up like an outhouse in the fog. <laughs> you know, I know you don't have any tattoos, but maybe that's one you should consider. Um, I probably should. In, in that same chapter, you tell a story about you packing, and I was dying laughing on this one. He says, my pack was in the backseat, carefully checked by me and rechecked by dad. I was 6'4", I weighed 200 pounds, even though I was 18 and very fit. The pack felt brutally heavy to me. I've never been able to travel light. And I put amen in the margin of my book. I, I've never known a guy that packs as much stuff when you travel. You know, I, I was laughing about that for a number of reasons, because you and I took a trip to the Bitterroot in your bad bird. And I think I had to put my backpack in the back seat because your trunk, you could not put an eight and a half by 11 envelope in the back. It was so full. <laughs> the back of that bird was about two inches off the ground. And you like driving that scalded rabbit, as you said, and we're driving in Wisdom, Montana. I mean, I should have said it loomed up like an outhouse in the fog. And when Dave, where are we going? So I saw a little bit of Hoot Gibson in that in that trip. I'm just just saying. Well, I inherited some things from my dad, Michael. <laughs> mostly, you know, not not too much by way of money, but uh, a lot by way of love of the outdoors, and isolation, and sojourning, and vagabond, etc. Many of us don't come to the awareness, and, and you do this so great in the book, of distilling what we've inherited, albeit DNA or patterns or 
even like the way we crinkle our nose, I see myself crinkling my nose with my progressive lenses and I see Joe Easley in the mirror. I see myself getting up and adjusting my clothes and my collar and I'm kind of agitated like Joe Easley. I'm pulling my pants up because we're both long-waisted, my dad and I, and I go, you're just looking like your old man. You say here on 144, I realized that I had an innate sense of how to lead people in the accomplishment of tasks. I inherited a resourcefulness and composure under duress. I did not yet know that I inherited it from my dad. That really caused me to stop. Was that a point in time or a process you said, golly, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm a guy who can be resourceful. I can persevere because I saw it in my dad. It took me a long time to see it, Michael. And it's interesting because some of the obvious things I inherited from my dad are my voice. I mean, my dad and I's voices are identical. I could tell a bunch of stories about that. My hands are identical. Uh, I inherited some stuff from him, but I figured out somewhere along the line, I inherited resourcefulness from my dad. I would travel with my father and we would encounter something. And I think I told a couple of stories in the book where we came across a log, across a back road in the middle of nowhere, traffic backed up both directions. The log is so big that the cars can't get through and there's six or eight men reefing on it. It won't even move. So my dad takes his 357 Magnum pistol out. <laughs> Toward, you know, about a one car length width, and he shoots six holes in it, you know, tear along the dotted line. Perforated. He perforated it. They broke it off, and everybody went their way, you know. And my dad figured out what to do. Uh, watched him take a fox out of the trap. And the you know, fox, of course, is going to bite the tar out of him if you're not careful. And, you know, he covered the culvert with the jacket and pulled the foot out and released the fox. And he just had a resourcefulness about him that, he could figure out how to get stuff done when you didn't have the resources you needed. And I found it in myself. And I told a story in the book about the night on the, on the mountain, the Micah mountain, we had four fires and three crews and I'm playing chess with our I, guys. I'm reading that chapter and my heart rate is rushing and I know it's going to end well, <laughs> right? But literally I'm yeah. going, Oh my word, how in the world do you take care of all these fires at once? Yeah. That was one of the most enjoyable nights of my life, Michael, in retrospect. In prospect, I'm about to freak out, you know, because, you know, it's not, it's not working out, but it was great fun. Great fun. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you do in the book is you insert these counseling sessions with your counselor. And I, I think most men you and I know are averse, loathe, reticent would be a mild word to ever seeing a counselor. Um, tell us about why that was important to you and how you chose to do it. And you, you saw him for a long time. We, we went, I've been in counseling four times as an adult, Michael, three times were almost worthless, but for four years, we saw a woman who's based out of Pocatello, Idaho was, she was brilliant. You know, not all counselors are created equal. This woman was trained, experienced, compassionate, thoroughly Christian, courageous. If she saw something wrong, she would just say it to you. My theory about counseling is most people don't do it out of humility and desire to grow. Most people do it because the pain is just so stinking bad that they just want to deal with it. And we had a case where Kathy and I went to lunch. I tell this story in the book with a couple we really respected. And after lunch, we walk out in the parking lot and the man says to us, you guys need counseling and we're going to pay for the first six sessions. And you talk about Exposed, what's going on yeah, here. Uh -huh. Exposed 
by a in front of a person whom I respected ridiculously. So all that said, we went down and started because of what he said to us. And we saw her, either me or Kathy or both of us, for four years. She helped our lives insanely. And I've come to define counseling as intense, personalized discipleship. I think it makes huge sense to go talk to someone. Kathy and I spoke to this woman the first time. We had a two-hour session. We went almost three. And when we got done, the woman looked at us and said, the two of you are simultaneously resourceless. Your childhood promises have caught up with you. Your horrible relational choices have caught up with you. Your false beliefs have caught up with you simultaneously. Both of you have gone into the sort of the midlife crisis of this ain't working. At the same time, you can't help each other. And she helped us. And you, you would you would go back to her on occasion too, just calling and checking up and touching base? After the four years, I would periodically. And she was just one of these people who was spiritually brilliant and compassionate. And you recognized after your first visit, this person is really helping me. And they got competency. You know, it's been interesting, the 40 plus years we've been in ministry, um, the number of counselors, there are people I would trust and refer to, I can count on one hand. And Tell me. the plethora of people that hang out a shingle and get a drive-by degree and think they know what they're doing. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean that too cavalier, but kind of, because there's a lot of bad counsel out there and a lot of nasal gaving, what's it called? Um, um, skepsis, a lot of introversion. Uh, I remember Larry Crabb, you and I talked about an article he wrote called Worshiping Insight. Yeah. And the problem is you just keep looking for the next you know, nugget of truth of explaining or defending your situation as opposed to, okay, this woman confronted you a lot of times. Oh my goodness, my friend. Oh my goodness. I had a situation, Michael, this has been 40 years ago now where I had a friend who was a trained compassionate counselor. He was just a friend. I wasn't seeing him as a counselor. We're sitting on a back porch in Colorado. And I said, Ken, what is it about my relational style that harms other people? And when you ask a vulnerable question like that, you like your friend to pause and say, oh, I don't know, Dave, you know, I don't think there is anything. Well, Ken didn't pause. <laughs> he simply said, Dave, you give people 110% and then they owe you. I mean, it was almost like he had premeditated it. Ouch. I, I broke down crying, Michael, because I realized instantly that is absolutely true. I give people 110% and they owe me. I'm telling this story to my counselor in Pocatello 20 years later. And when I finish the story, she says, do you want to know the rest of it, Dave? I'm going, no. There, not really. More? <laughs> yeah, not really. There can't be more. She said, Dave, you give people 110% and then they owe you. And if they don't pay, then you feel justified in withdrawing from them. I'm not paraphrasing these things. These are word for word. They stuck with me. And I have been fighting that my entire life. I think it's something out of, okay, I'm going to give dad and mom and the pastor and my friends and everybody 110%. Nobody's ever going to be upset with me again. I'm going to be a performer. But then they don't, you know, I knocked myself out for them. and They did pay. All right, I'm done with you, you know. 
So, it's, so it's ingrained where, in me. Where, I, I granted, and I'm not trying to make excuses for you or me in that regard, but wherein do we appeal to, you know, reject a factious man, uh, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, Paul says, be at peace with all men. I mean, there's some relational capital, Dave, that whether it's our parents of origin or close friends, and we, you and I have talked about relationships are transitional. You and I and a handful of guys have an extraordinary, unique, very rare group of guys. We've been friends 30-plus years. I've introduced you to a couple of my friends. George and I have been friends for over 54 years. Nobody has these kind of relationships. Right, right. Now, juxtapose those against the average guy who's got a father wound in his father's wake, doesn't even know it. It's to the point where... How do we understand, okay, that's a relationship I can turn the page on. And one that says, okay, I give 110%, but I have to give mercy and grace no matter what. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. And the answer to that, in my judgment, is this is an ingrained pattern in me that I use on everybody. Kathy, my three kids, my grandkids, my friend Michael, everybody. Now, I have people in my life that I have finally said, you know what, that's, that's a contentious person. I can't fix them. All I'm going to do is wear myself out. The famous statement, I think uh, Gordon McDonald said, there are some people in life who are very draining, draining people. people. Mm-hmm. And the strategy is get away from them. And I personally, I fully endorse that. You know, Now, when you're pastoring a church and you got a person in there who's the, who's the elder chairman, that's tough to do. However, uh, <laughs> if, if, if you have a, an acquaintance or a person you do business with or someone else, by all means, you don't have enough emotional energy to pour it down the drain every time you encounter that person. Get with some people who are going to build you up, you know. I have a friend who went through a very difficult divorce, and she had, uh, Cindy and I knew them for many years, she had, I want to say, four or five kids. But in dealing with her divorce and her mother's unkindness toward her, she made a comment one time that I've never forgotten. She said, I didn't realize I did not have the emotional reserve to be a mother to my children. And it's in keeping with Gordon McDonald's about the, the five kinds of people that affect our spiritual right. life. And I liken it to a basketball. You know, it says nine to 11 pounds, I think, uh, PSI uh, uh, pressure. And they acclimate those in the basketball court a few hours before you practice or play. And you know as well as I do, if it's over like 12 pounds, it bounces great, but it's uncontrollable. If it's below right. nine, you're working like a dog to keep the ball right. going. But if it's nine to 11 and the temperature and humidity are right, it's effortless to bounce a basketball. And right. I think it's a great help when it comes to our emotional reserves. Sometimes we do have to work hard, but it can't be ongoing, right? Yeah, it can't be ongoing because we're not infinite people. I mean, I heard somebody compare life to a sprint rest, sprint rest, sprint rest, as opposed to a marathon. So there's times in life when I just go to the wall. I just got no choice. I mean, I just hit it hard, but I got to rest at some point. If I never rest, Michael, I run out of emotional reserves. I harm myself, but more importantly, I harm the people around me. You You can tell when somebody's yeah. Worn out and they're just tough to be around. So so help out your old pal here and others listening. So when that happens, how do you not just turn the page on them, but then emotionally recover from their exasperation or their difficulty in your life? 
you have to go renew yourself in your relationship with God. You have to go back and say, I am a much-loved son of the most powerful being in the universe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have this relationship where I am loved despite who I am. There is no condemnation for me. So I recalibrate myself through spiritual disciplines about my relationship with my Heavenly Father. But the second factor I would say is, I'll throw you in a third bonus factor here in a minute, but the second factor is we're renewed by people. We're hurt by people, and we're healed by people. The closer they are to us, the more it hurts. The closer they are to us, the more they can help us. And so we can be renewed by the people around us who build us up and give us energy. It's a very positive thing. The third thing I would say is we all have certain wirings about ourselves that cause us renewal. I mean, there are some people who are renewed by reading. Some people are renewed by taking a walk in the woods. Some people are renewed by music. Some people are renewed by exercise. And when I understand my own sort of wiring for renewal and I can engage in some of that activity, I can get myself some help. So draw near to God, draw near to the people who care about me, doing the kind of personal renewal things that help me. That doesn't, it's not, it's not magic. And, and number three there is interesting because you and I are similar, I think, in this respect that because we're doers and take the, take the lead and step in and say a hard thing sometimes to take time off feels lazy. It feels, you know, the shame and guilt comes in. You got to get back on the bicycle or whatever. And I think for me, you and I've talked about this in my mid sixties now, I joke about, I could get into the monastic period. (laughs) (laughs) I like being alone. I can be in my office with my computer and my books and my music, and I can be happy for hours. And uh, it concerns Cindy at times because she says, you need to get out. And I go, I know that intellectually, but emotionally I'm happier being a monk. (laughs) (laughs) That probably says more about me than I should reveal. But I, I think that renewal is I, I don't know. You can respond back. Guys aren't good at this. I mean, you, you said it. You know, some guys go play golf. Some guys take ride a bike. Some guys read a book. I don't think guys understand the connection. They probably don't. There's too much drivenness, too much accomplishment, etc. But when you figure out what it is that renews you, I think it's a huge deal. Yeah. For me, I get renewed by by building stuff. You know. So if I go in the garage and I'm building a new piece of furniture, or even I get renewed even by organizing stuff that's a big mess, you know? How's that desk uh, coming? I, How's that desk coming? Yeah, yeah take a look <laughs> at this place. As okay, you can see, for, I for our friends who can't see you and me right now, my desk has everything in its place and a place for everything. Dave Gibson's just a place. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only room in the house I'm allowed to decorate. I got it. I got it. But I've made the most of it. Do you still have 85 uh, highlighters in a large coffee cup? That's what I want to know. I'm way beyond 85. My oh friend. dear. Okay. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Let me, let me go back to the book for just a moment. You chose this metaphor. That's really literal more than a metaphor in my father's wake. And part of your story is talking about not only the wake your father left and you're in it, but you actually retrace a canoe, <clears throat> an open canoe trip that he did. What was the hard wiring in Dave Gibson's head and heart that said, I got to go do that for some meaning. The, the wake thing has a double meaning, as you said. In the wake of his relational style, where, you know, his relational style just slapped into you like a wake of a boat. In 1947, my father had to drop out of forestry school for a couple of years to get a job. 
And when he dropped out, he and his buddy went up to Canada and took a, what ended up being an 80 mile canoe trip down the Gouley River, through Lake Superior, through the Shiplocks, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, down to Dunbar State Forest where he was studying. And I knew exactly the route because it was so formative to him. He had told it to me 20 times. And so in 2019, a friend and I took his canoe, went up and retraced that exact trip. We hired a woman to ferry our car down to the bottom, got in the Gouley River, you know, where he did, went down to the bay, all the way down, went through a shiplock. He went through with an iron ore ship when he went through in 47, literally rode a canoe up in the corner of a shiplock and an iron ore ship came in with him. We we went wow. through alone wow. and came back there. And Michael, there was something in me that just saying, you know, this was so formative in my dad. I want to see what he saw. I want to experience what he experienced. I, I want to just know what went on here. Now, you know, when my dad did it, it was him and his buddy. And they got into a, a storm. They had trouble. They had a lot of difficulties. My dad never could swim. He never learned to shore. swim. Never learned to swim. Raised on the shore of Lake Michigan. Could not swim. He could dog paddle and kind of keep his head above water in calm water. He could not swim. Water terrified him. Interesting. And uh, so he took this canoe trip. And Michael, if you've been on Lake Superior, it's an ocean. Canoe, you can't see the. It's an ocean. You can't see anything. Yep, water. Oh, it's an ocean. When my dad went through, they got into a couple storms. The day that I went through along the shore of Lake Superior for almost thirty miles, the lake was like glass. It's like that, like one day a year, and it was like glass. It was gorgeous. So we didn't experience exactly what he did. But in you're in a canoe looking out into the ocean. I mean, we're only 100 yards from shore, of course, but you look out into Lake Superior, and it's just frightening. Part of the trip for Dad was he couldn't swim. He's in a storm in Lake Superior in a canoe. And canoes are the tippiest vessel ever invented by man. I've sworn off them. You know? And I think you told me that it's not the swimming or even with the life vest. It's the water temp that'll kill you. Water temperature kills you. I mean, the number one cause of death in Yellowstone Park, cold water drowning. You get in there, and even if your head's above water, you cannot last very long. And that's the situation that, you know, probably less severe in Lake Superior in August when we mm -hmm. were there, of course, mm -hmm. than it would be in Shoshone Lake in August. When you're on the Gula River paddling and, and you and Alan are cheating with a little battery motor there from time to time, did you wish you could pick up the phone and call who and say, dad, my word. Did I ever, did I ever, you know, dad, Hey, we're right here. I recognize this from your picture. You know, Michael in the book, I put a picture of my dad standing behind his canoe yep. when they hit the Gooley Bay of Lake Superior. And I think Alan and I found that exact spot and we took a picture of me. Now they're, they're different pictures. Cause my dad was, you know, 21 and looked like a sprint athlete. And I was, 67. You look pretty like good a, for an old man. You look pretty look good like for a beach old man. white whale. You, you look better than, you look better than Putin with his shirt off. Let me just say that. <laughs> well, in my own defense, I also act better than him, but in, in any case, it was pretty profound. We finished the trip. We're at Dunbar state forest. No one is there. I saw the buildings where he would have lived that summer. I walked out in the woods by myself in Dunbar state forest. And, uh, I broke down, Michael. I just thought to myself, you know, my dad walked in these woods. He learned how to survey in these woods. He studied in these woods. 
Of course, I was a forester when I started. I did the same thing as him at Lubricht State Forest in Montana. And I'm standing in the middle of this forest that's been cultivated for 80 years by the Michigan State University. And I just broke down thinking, my, my dad stood here, you know. 4,226 miles in the Moose, 63 miles in the Roy Michael, which is the name of your canoe. We had been there in three, we'd been three time zones, two countries, six states, one province. And I was gone 12 days and 11 nights. So a 12-day trip changed you. It did. It was wonderful, Michael, to experience what my dad experienced. A lot had changed. There was more houses. There was there was wind farms on the ridge, etc. None of this stuff was there. You know, we went into Canada with passports and all kinds of jumping through hoops. And, you know, my dad just drove into Canada. So, so... Last question for this miscreant I'm talking to. That that was one of my favorite stories in the book. Sorry. Yeah, that was that was funny. <laughs> it's that it's a new word for me and you now. I'm going to call you a miscreant yeah. from now on. So your dad was not a believer. You came to Christ in a pretty profound way. You've been a in quote ministry. You've been a pastor, a missionary, a speaker, uh, etc. And that was something he never could enter into. But something changed late in his life. Tell us about that. Yeah, I appreciate the question. My dad was a lifelong churchgoer, very religious man, but he trusted his religious system instead of the sacrificial death of Christ. He had a heart attack at the age of 62. I was living in Alaska. He survived it, no problem. I asked my mom if I should come down. She said, no, he's going to be fine. So I wrote him a letter, and in the letter I explained to him, why I came to faith, how I came to faith, why I left the church of my upbringing, and I gave him the gospel at the end. Sin, separation, substitution, you must trust Christ. He never spoke to me about the letter, not once. But my sister told me that my mom and dad kept the letter in their china closet and read it periodically. Somewhere in his mid to late 70s, my dad changed his trust from his system of upbringing to Christ himself, and remarkably verbalized that to me at least five times in the last 15 years of his life, made it very clear to me he he had put his trust in Christ. My dad, the older he got, the more he lost, the more gracious, grateful, compassionate, and generous he became. He lost his, his wife, my mother of 57 years. He lost his eyesight. He lost his ability to drive, his ability to do outdoor stuff, and the more he lost, the better person he became. It was remarkable. Michael, I, I want to be sure I read this one little poem to you that was really striking to me. Uh, toward the very end of the book, I quoted this thing by Ambrose Bierce. He said, so in the survey of his worth, the small asperities of his spirit disappear, lost in the grander curves of his character. And asperities is a word I had to look up. It means roughness or harshness. So the small roughness or harshness of his life disappears in the grander curves of his character. And I was focused most of the time on the small, the roughness of his life and missed, you know, the diligence, the leadership skill, the faithfulness, the control of his emotions, his eventually his faith in Christ, provision, you know, for his family, the resourcefulness my dad had a compassion for people who needed help, even though on the outside, he never struck you that way. 
So I, I changed my perspective on my dad over the course of the decades pretty starkly. In My Father's Wake, written by Dr. Dave Gibson, you can pick it up anywhere you purchase books online. You know, we do a lot of interviews. I mean, In Context is an interview format where we encourage people to think and to read outside the box. I don't, I don't know that I've said this, but once this year, I'm going to tell you, buy this book. Buy a stack of them. Keep them on your shelf. You're going to encounter people that have uh, not just father, but parenting issues. And this book is a tremendous read. The stories will provoke stories in your own heart and mind. And Dave, thanks for working on this. I know you said it was a delight putting it together, and that's commendable. And I pray that God will use this in great, great ways. Thank you so much, my friend. appreciate the time. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.